Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I want to start out by reminding you, as always, that there is a website behind all this podcast business, and it's called wealthformula.com. It's jam-packed full of resources for you to check out. One of the things that you can check out there is the opportunity to join Investor Club. This is the accredited investor group where the magic happens in terms of putting your lazy money to work, uh, if you are an accredited investor, that is. What is an accredited investor? An accredited investor is simply someone who makes $200,000 per year or $300,000 if filing jointly or has a net worth of a million dollars outside of their personal residence. If you are accredited, therefore, you uh, by these criteria, you are then qualified to participate in opportunities not available to everyone else. If you're interested in joining something like that, join Investor Club, see deal flow for yourself. You got to have a conversation with me, fill out a survey, and we can be off to the races in no time. Go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club. Um, also would like to, uh, remind you folks that if you can't get enough of wealth formula, if you are totally into it and want to get a community going, uh, there's a couple options for you. One is our upcoming meetup in Dallas, Texas in, uh, September 27th and 28th. We have some really interesting and, uh, great speakers, including, uh, Tom Wheelwright, uh, my, uh, CPA, Robert Kiyosaki CPA, um, Doug Ludmel, who was on our podcast last week, who is a, a fantastic asset protection attorney. We've got uh, we've got an economist. Anyway, it's going to be lots of fun. We're going to do a, a a tour as well on a bus, a bus tour as they call them, and we're going to go check out a bunch of the investments that we've made through Investor Club. Also, I will point out that in our last meetup. The thing that was probably most popular was not necessarily the lectures or the you know the the bus tour itself, but rather simply meeting up with one another and having a few drinks, which we're going to do plenty of. If you're interested in joining us, go to wealthformulaevents.com. It's filling up very quickly. We're capped at a hundred. I think we're at seventy already. So check that out. Um, wealthformulaevents.com. Also. If you're interested in Wealth Formula, the community, but not but unable to get it out to a live event, go to wealthformularoadmap.com and check it check out the private community there. Man, that intro is getting long, right? Maybe I need to cut that down a little bit. 
Uh, sorry about that. Listen, um, let's get on with this show today, okay? Uh, learning is a topic I want to talk about a little bit more. I talk about it a lot, but, you know, learning is an electrical function of the brain. And um, uh, remember, I used to have spent some time in the neurosurgery. This is an interest of mine. I didn't really end up doing it in the end. But I have a lot of interest in this. And when I think about everything that we do and the way we learn, um, you know, it just brings me back to the brain. You know, when we first start learning something, our brains start developing these connections. They're like these electrical connections. Then, then they start to sort of integrate this information. And over a period of time, those electrical connections become stronger and stronger. They give that perception of something becoming second nature. I'm sure you've had it, right? I mean, think about the things that you do on a daily basis and some of those things when you learn for the first time. It's not, uh, that's, you know, when something becomes second nature, it, it's, it's using like a completely different, uh, different part of your brain almost, right? Um, and it isn't until a basic function becomes second nature that you can really start adding layers to it at that point. So let me give you an example. So if you're a professional baseball player, at one point you were an infant who couldn't walk, unless you were, of course, you know, Kim Jong-un or something like that. And uh, if you weren't Kim Jong-un, you couldn't walk. And eventually uh, you had to learn to walk. And then that walk uh, turned into an athletic prowess that turned into something where you could literally chew tobacco and hit a baseball traveling 100 miles per hour with a piece of wood at the same time. And that is when you leave that position of just being able to walk and you're starting to use this multi-dimensional approach to your brain. You see, expertise in things requires depth of experience that allows for complex neural circuitry to form and ultimately run on autopilot. And at that point, you're able to focus in on what I'm calling this sort of multiple-dimensional uh, you know, way of thinking. Uh, some of it's conscious, some of it's not, Right. Uh, you have that one dimension where you're just kind of standing there and you're not even thinking about standing, but you're standing, you're leaning in at the plate. Uh, and then the other dimension is looking at this ball and the pitcher moving, and then something in your brain's actually knows how to react to it. So there's like all these different levels that, that go into it. And that really relates to everything, you know, that kind of thinking, basic to complex. So how does this all relate to investing? Well, becoming a sophisticated investor over time requires a similar type of layering of information and ultimately a development of neural circuitry to allow for a more comprehensive approach to personal finance. Now, I've talked about this kind of thing in the past. Uh, you might remember a couple episodes again. I talked about these novice investor traps. Uh, one of the main, the, one of the biggest traps, of course, is this trap of of falling for investments that are good from far, but far from good. Uh, the kind that have the big front end cash on cash returns that depreciate to zero in just a few years, and you're like, well, that looked good at first, but maybe it's not great when you do those annualized returns. And those kinds of things, well, they seem obvious. Uh, to avoid, right? I mean, they seem obvious when you think about it, but most people aren't thinking about it deep enough because they're still walking. Uh, cash on cash, that 
you know, that whole concept of that is really, you know, it's sort of like walking in the alternative investment space. It's where you first start to get your bearing in this space. And, you know, a lot of people get it after reading like a Robert Kiyosaki book, which is all about the first time they've really thought about passive income, quote unquote, passive income and that kind of thing. Um, over time, though, the successful investors kind of kind of expand and their depth uh, and complexity to their investing philosophy really develops. Um, they might even go back and read those same Kiyosaki books because they're not that basic. They're actually pretty, uh, pretty sophisticated in terms of the content, but you have to read and not just listen for things like cash flow. Robert says a lot of really, really wise things. Um, and for people who are reading those books the first time, Sometimes, you know, they just kind of ignore those things uh, because they're too complex or they're more subtle than the cash flow part of it uh, that you can absorb at first glance. Now, I have to admit, I'm one of those guys, right, like who was inspired by a Kiyosaki book. In my case, it was the cash flow quadrant, which I read uh, just after residency and um, just kind of completely changed my life. Uh, and at that point, I'll admit wholeheartedly that, you know, at that time, several years ago, I was one of those people who was just learning to walk. And frankly, there's no shame in that. Over time, you know, I've spent so much time since then thinking about this stuff that I, you know, I got more sophisticated than most uh, when it comes to thinking about money. It's because I think about money more than most people do. That's why. Furthermore, I have, um, you know, I've been around long enough to know that every time I think I know it all and that I think I'm like an expert on something, five years later, I'm a lot smarter. And I look back to the previous five years and what I was saying going, what was I thinking? Well, fortunately, it's not becoming quite that bad, but at least it's like now I'm like, well, I wish I'd known what I know now five years ago. That's a lot better than thinking uh, what were you thinking, which was probably what I used to do. Now, over the last several years, one of the most critical elements of investing that I've learned to understand is the importance of the interplay between deploying capital and taxes. Now, do not underestimate this. In fact, I will make a bold statement in that I would say that taxes play perhaps the dominant role in my investing decisions uh, and for that matter, even some of my life decisions, and I'll get into that in a second. So, but let me give you an example on the investing decision side. So say, you know, uh, I made a hundred thousand dollars and I can use it whatever the way I want, right? For better or for worse, the first thing that comes into my mind when I get that hundred grand is that a big chunk of it, if I don't do anything with it, is going to go and get sliced off and sent to the government in the form of taxes, um, the way I can avoid that is, of course, doing what the government wants me to do, which is to, amongst other things, invest in real estate. You see, the, the tax code is largely a series of tax incentives. You've heard me say that before. You've heard some of my guests say that before. If you do what the government wants you to do, you will pay less in taxes. So if you stimulate the economy through business activity or investing in things people need, like a roof over their head, for example, the government will reward you for it by decreasing your tax burden. Now, if I want to keep as much of my earned money as possible, 
For me personally, I invested in real estate because when you take things like cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation, my investments not only serve to build wealth in the future, but they also decrease the amount of money I have to give to the government today. And if you think about it, that is like way too good of a deal, way too good of an incentive to ignore. Now compare that to investing your hard-earned money into another opportunity that might sound compelling on the surface, but may not have the same tax advantages. I'll give you an example. So a lot of people I know in the group really like investing in debt funds, right? Debt funds like notes or you know other things that are backed by maybe a UCC1 or something like that. There's nothing terrible about them. I get it. But the way I see it, if I invest in real estate, Instead, not only do I get the benefits of tax-sheltered income, but I also get to largely write off the invested capital itself. So again, I'm getting the tax benefits from the investment, right? I'm getting sheltered income, but the but just getting it off my you know uh, my AGI, my taxable income immediately is huge, and then that's not even including the potential for the upside in appreciation in real estate. Um, in, in the equity. The reality is that, you know, this example of investing in debt has none of those advantages. I'm not saying don't do it, but what I'm saying is that start looking at these things in a multidimensional fashion. And in this case, what you're doing is you're looking at not only the investment, you know, from the risk standpoint, from the standpoint of the returns, but also from the tax benefit side. Now, if you do that and you decide you want to do it, then great, do it. But please don't just be a rookie investor looking for, you know, some uh, get seduced uh, by big cash on cash returns. Now, I mentioned the tax code uh, has not only influenced my investing decisions, but actually, in my case, has actually included some life decisions as well. You see, after I left medicine, I had to decide where to focus my time. I was already investing in real estate and enjoyed it so I became what is called a real estate professional. What's a real estate professional, you ask? Well, it's a designation, right? A real estate professional requires 750 hours minimum of documented real estate activity per year with no other activity that you spend uh, that you're doing more than that. So if you're a W-2 with a full-time job, may not work for you. But for me, this is what I do. And if you meet those criteria of being a real estate professional, it can be incredibly, incredibly powerful. You see, in real estate, with all the debt and appreciation and all that stuff, we get a ton of losses, right? And normally, if you are an investor investing in real estate, you can only use those passive uh, losses from depreciation, et cetera, against other passive gains, but if you are a real estate professional, those, those losses, those passive losses become activated. And when they become activated, they can apply and offset any other source of active income that you or your spouse, if you're filing jointly, may earn in a given year. Now, if you didn't understand that, listen to it again, and you may contemplate a career change, okay? Because it's, 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 it's absolutely huge. So let's think about that. Say, for example, you sell a 
practice for a big chunk of cash early in the year, right? Now, I've seen multiple folks in Investor Club do this, uh, and they come out with you know these eight-figure windfalls of liquidity. Now, if they did nothing else, they'd be paying a huge chunk in capital gains uh, at the end of that uh, for the you know for the next year. Now, what if those guys decided to focus the rest of the year on do, on going full time into real estate investing and becoming designated as real estate professionals? Well, think what they could do. All the money gained from the liquidity event could theoretically be invested into real estate. And what that means with bonus depreciation applied to the capital gains is that that person who just made like, you know, eight, nine, 10 million bucks may not have to pay any taxes at all. That's not theory. That's reality. There are people in our group that are doing exactly that. Suffice it to say that I believe being a good investor requires a tax strategy as well. Like a business, you can't focus just on your top line and never think about your expenses. You know, for most people, taxes are the biggest expense they have. So run your personal finances like a business and a lot of things will become more clear. Of course, when I finished surgical training, I have to, again, admit, um, you know, I wasn't I didn't suddenly, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I haven't been thinking less way my whole life. When I finished surgical training, you know, none of this was even remotely in my mind. I didn't make any money. So what would I know? Right. It wasn't until a couple years later, um, after I'd already been following Robert Kiyosaki, that I discovered a book that would fundamentally reshape my thinking about taxes and its impact on investing. The book is called Tax-Free Wealth, and it was written by Robert Kiyosaki's CPA, Tom Wheelwright. Now, Tom is a genius and has taught me a great deal over the past few years, and now uh, I'm happy to call him my CPA as well. So when we come back, it is my pleasure to once again have Tom Wheelwright on the show to share some more of his tax-free wealth pearls. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast, well, he needs little introduction. He's been on the show a few times before. He is a rich dad advisor on taxes to Robert Kiyosaki and the, his organization, and he's the author of the most thrilling book on taxes you'll ever read called Tax-Free Wealth, which is now in its second edition. 
please welcome my CPA, the Michael Jordan of taxes himself, Mr. Tom Wheelwright. Tom, how are you doing? Good, Buck. How are you? Good, good. So you have been traveling a ton this summer. Has it been all leisure or have you been uh, spreading the good word on tax-free wealth? Been spreading the good word around the world. Been in, uh, we, we were in um, London, we were in Poland, we were in Bucharest, Romania. Uh-huh. So we have been uh, a lot of places in, in, the, in this, and then we head to Mexico um, later this month and uh, next month uh, the uh, country of Texas. And uh, after that, we go to, um, we actually go to Asia in the fall. So. Wow. so is this sort of like the caravan with you and Robert Kiyosaki? And is, is Kenny come along to Ken McElroy? Ken does not. Uh, okay. Ken doesn't come along. Typically, uh, it's me. It's usually me and Robert and then uh, an assortment of other characters. So yeah. Uh, yeah. it's pretty much always me and Robert, but uh, otherwise we, we take who is available at the time and yeah um so this last one was uh me and robert and we had um a, a few others we actually had a financial planner with us and he was oh, great really? uh, yeah interesting yeah. well uh that that'd be fun to see something like that um but well let's let's move on to some of the topics today you know you've been on the show a few times before uh and we've kept it pretty basic um you know in a and since then, you know, since the show started, a number of our listeners actually have become clients of WealthAbility. Um, a few of them actually become your personal clients. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the topics uh, that I think may qualify as slightly more advanced and that might seem, um, it might seem a little piecemeal, but I think that would be the things that are kind of recurring uh, in my group. Um, this one, uh, if here, I would love to hear you talk about this concept, which I love. Um, and I heard on your show, can't remember the name of the guy you had on from UCLA. Um, but he talks about this concept of buy, borrow and die. What is this concept and why is it so powerful? So, so this is uh, actually from USC. Um, he may not admit that he's from USC, uh, <laughs> scandal that's going on down there. Yeah, right. Um, he may wish he were from UCLA. Um, but the, the concept is something that we've actually talked about for years. And, and the idea is that, you know, there are a couple of really big tax benefits in the U.S. tax law and that people don't typically take advantage of. And the first one is, is that debt is not taxable. So that's a really big advantage. Debt's not taxable. So that means that anytime you take out your equity, from an investment, whether it's stocks or real estate or a business, and you take it out by virtue of a loan, it's not taxable. So uh, the idea is, um, you know, buy buy assets, because buying assets is always good. Buy assets, borrow instead of selling the assets, borrow against the assets. And then uh, eventually when you die, the tax that's inherent the appreciation is, is um, becomes tax-free. It basically goes away. We have what's called a step-up in basis, and there's no more capital gains tax uh, when you die. So you can do it actually in any type of asset. The easiest one is real estate, because in real estate, we have uh, what people 
understand is a like kind exchange or a 1031 exchange. So you can actually switch out your real estate for other real estate. And as it appreciates, in or, instead of taking the money out as, you know, selling the real estate, people always tell me, they say, well, I, I don't want to do a 1031 because I want some of the cash. I'm going, well, great. So borrow the cash. Yeah. Borrowing, borrowing and paying the interest, <clears throat> excuse me, is far cheaper than paying the tax. So yeah. you're going, oh, I don't want to pay the interest. Well, why not? You know, you're paying the tax. You'd rather pay a, a 20 to 40% tax than paying, yeah. you know, than paying 5% interest. That makes no sense. Yeah, no, agree a hundred percent. And it's, and it's an interesting concept because like, um, you know, initially when I heard that, of course, the first thing I'm thinking about is real estate and that kind of thing. But I also, you know, I'm, I'm involved in the cryptocurrency world and, uh, you know, Bitcoin. So there's not a whole lot you can do with Bitcoin if you believe this stuff's going to, um, you know, hit all time highs at some point you're, and you're just sitting on, you know, Bitcoin. You can actually borrow against your Bitcoin. You can borrow up to 50, 60 percent against it and, um, you know, use that to buy uh, buy another asset. So there, it's it's really interesting. But you know what? This this concept. Um, you know, it makes me think about some of the conversations, you know, you and I have had lately. And also, uh, there was, a you know, Gloria Vanderbilt died, right? She was, and she left Anderson Cooper $200 million or something like that. In her case, um, obviously she had a big estate planning, um, issue. I'm sure she covered herself well for that. Um, but that buy, borrow, die thing only really works if things are in your estate, right? And, and then there's this whole issue of like people who are doing estate planning um, and then those worlds start to collide. So how do you navigate that? Well, first of all, that's why you have a tax advisor okay, <laughs> to help you navigate it. You don't do this by yourself. Right. Um, that's a very important point. But yeah. second of all, it doesn't have to be in your state. Your, it doesn't have to be in your state to borrow. So you can still do the borrow part. Now, it may be buy, borrow, and then eventually it goes away when your children die or when your grandchildren die, right? Mm -hmm. So eventually it may go away, but you can also defer forever. So let's say, for example, that you decide, okay, I'm going to do some estate planning. So you form a family limited partnership um, before your assets are too much, right? Mm -hmm. You give away. Um, to your kids in trust, you give them a limited partnership interest, and then you're the but you're the general partner. So that means that you have access and control over the money. So you just borrow from the partnership like you would if you owned it. So it doesn't have to be in your estate for you to borrow against it. The only thing that in in order to eventually completely eliminate the tax, yeah, it has to be in your estate. But eventually, what's going to happen is is you're going to have children and grandchildren and that, and, and that estate actually dissipates typically, right? Because you have more and more right. um, uh, heirs, you know, eventually over the, over the decades or generations, you end up with less per person. Eventually, probably what happens is each person ends up with less than the exemption amount. Yeah. And then they die and that tax goes away. Right. So it's, it's still a, even though, you know, even if you might have $200 million or $2 billion, whatever, there's still things you can do that will really effectively have the same result. Right. So obviously really interesting concept. And, um, 
you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to apply that in, in a lot of different ways, uh, different things that I'm doing. Um, in our group, particularly in our uh, accredited investor group, um, you know, the majority of the investments available to people and, and frankly, uh, the ones that people are probably putting most of their money in are limited partnerships, largely in the form of, say, real estate syndications, right? Where, uh, you know, because most of the people in my group are pretty busy professionals. They're doctors or dentists working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Um, they're making a lot of money and they want to deploy it into good investments and they find that limited partnerships are a good way for them to go. Um, how do you apply this kind of thing or can you uh, in situations like that? Because most syndications, uh, almost everyone I've seen, even, you know, even ones like where Kenny says it's buy and hold forever, it's not really hold forever. It's a eventually there's a sale and there's a capital gain. So are, what kinds of strategies can people who do predominantly limited partnership investing um, look at in lieu of that? Well, there, there are two really good strategies right now um, with the, the current tax law. One is you have bonus depreciation. So you may have gain, and it may be capital gain taxed at 20%. You may have gain from your se- the sale because you're not going to be able to do a like Ken Exchange at 1031. You're going to be able to sure. do that. No, no, almost no syndicator wants to go through that. That is a massive headache to Mm -hmm. to deal with something like that. So you're going to have gain. Okay, we'll take the proceeds and invest in a new deal. Right. Because the new deal should give you a a write-off equal to your investment or greater to your investment with bonus depreciation. So you're still, you're going to get a lot of that money back when you invest in the new deal. The other thing you can do, of course, is you can take the gain and you can roll it into an opportunity zone. So opportunity zones, you don't even have to roll the, you know, the full amount. You can just roll the gain portion of it. And uh, frequently the gain is less than your cash. You just have to roll the gain into a, an opportunity zone fund. And, uh, and that's deferred. And that's uh, typically it could be deferred forever. So there's lots of opportunities in a business. In a business, you can roll one business, let's say you're in a private equity fund and you've got a capital gain. You can roll that capital gain into an opportunity zone. You know? Or you might decide, well, I'm gonna get into another business and that business has um, a, a bunch of expenses early on and you get deductions for that or it buys equipment or some other bonus depreciation. So there's always a way to deploy that money. The key is that the basically the government says, if you consume the money, other than through debt, if you consume the money, we're going to tax you. If you redeploy it and you invest it, whether it's in a business, real estate, commodities, whatever, we're going to give you a tax deduction and you're not going to have to pay tax on it. So it's, it's actually a pretty simple concept. Yeah. And to the extent, you know, that, and, and that's basically kind of what I was getting at is basically you've got bonus depreciation, you've got opportunity zones. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on compare and contrast, but my own, you know, sort of on the ground look at that has been that, you know, um, bonus depreciation in my view still continues to be probably the best option because you have a lot of freedom in terms of investing in quality assets that you actually want, you know, you feel good about. Whereas in opportunity zones, a lot of them are funds, first of all, um, that are blind funds, but they're specifically focused on areas 
that need development. And then there's a significant, and we actually talked about this in Scottsdale with uh, Ken McElroy and Dave Steele, but they actually require a significant amount of investment into the property. And so it creates a little bit of a, I, I, I would just say that, you know, my concern would be that in theory, it sounds great, but in execution um, to be seen, to, you know, way to well, be seen. I, I would say that's true with any investment though. Yeah. You know, investing in real estate sounds great, but the execution, it depends on how well you execute. Well, right. you know, you, you're talking about two guys, uh, Steele and, and McElroy, who have been doing multifamily real estate syndications for many, many, many years. Yep. So they know what they're doing. Well, we have had opportunity zones for a year now. Yep. So of course they're new and everybody's new to them. Now here's the thing though. You, they're, they're called opportunity zones for a reason. It's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to improve an area of town that needs improvement and you have to actually improve it. You can't just buy into it. You have to improve it. Right. So you're right that there are fewer opportunities in opportunity zones than there would be with with bonus depreciation. I mean, you can get bonus depreciation anywhere. Okay, um, so it's it's certainly more flexible to use bonus depreciation. I think too many, frankly, I think too many people dismiss the idea of the opportunity zone. I think that because when you're looking, I mean, take Ken McElroy. So Ken's always looking for value add, right? He's always right. thinking, how does he add value? Well, what better place to do value add than an opportunity zone? Yeah. So to, to me, I still think that people who don't pay, I, I think it's a mistake not to pay attention to opportunity zones. It, will you find something that's right for you? I don't know. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a much smaller pool of assets, right? A much smaller pool of investments. That, that doesn't mean it's not, you know, a, a, a real serious opportunity to, to do something good. So I've had a handful of guys in our group, <clears throat> in our credit investor group, that are having or have had significant liquidity events this year from selling practices, um, mostly dental practices for the most part. And a couple of them have actually decided to become uh, real estate professionals uh, and take these, you know, these large liquidity uh, events and turn them into opportunities to really just invest in real estate full time and to take, um, you know, take advantage of the tax law there. Um, what do you think, you know, can you explain what they're doing and, you know, whether you like that strategy? Well, of course, I always think that you should start with what's your investment strategy first, right? <laughs> and, and then worry about the taxes second. I never like the tax tail wagging the dog. Um, let's say though, that you want to invest in real estate. Right. And what we all know is that professional investors always are more successful than amateur investors, mm -hmm. just like professional business owners, always more successful than amateur business owners or professional basketball players are always more successful than amateur basketball players. So, you know, becoming a professional is a really good thing from an investment standpoint. So I'm a big believer that it doesn't matter what you're investing in, you need to become a professional. So if you're investing in the stock market and you're doing trading or you're doing options, become a professional. If you're getting into business, I mean, look, you're going to be a doctor, you better be a professional, right? I mean, you don't want to be, you don't want to be a, 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 uh, some, you know, kind of sometimes doctor. I mean, 
Yeah. <laughs> like, well, like, I mean, I like think specifically... like, like those commercials that say, right. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, we're okay. We're yeah. okay. I mean, it's the same type of thing. So you become a professional now for real estate from a tax standpoint, a yes. real estate professional is specifically defined. That's what I'm talking about. Defined as somebody with over 750 hours in real estate, more time in real estate than all their other business interests combined. If you're full time in it, that's easy. If you're, if you have a full time W2 job, that's difficult. Now it can be either you or your spouse who's the real estate professional. So if you, if you have a full time W2 job and your spouse doesn't, then maybe your spouse, you know, can do it. And because you're finding a joint return, it counts for both of you. So it, it's a fairly simple test to me. It's basically 15 hours a week. What I like about the test, and this is my point from earlier, Buck, is that when we become, the test actually forces you to become a professional investor. It forces you to spend the time at it. So it's actually forcing you to make, to, to be a better investor. So I, the, 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 those who qualify as real estate professionals who truly qualify, because if you truly qualify, you're probably spending a thousand hours or more on real estate. Well, if you spend a thousand hours in real estate on real estate in a year, you should become a professional pretty quick because you're spending 20, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week. You should, you know, you'll, you'll get your time in and you'll figure that out pretty quick. Real estate's not rocket science. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not like heart surgery, right? It's, it's much, it's, much simpler than that, but it does take time and be, takes becoming a professional. So it, this is another case where the, the tax law actually promotes good investment behavior. So in this case, say somebody had a, you know, an $8 million liquidity moment. Um, and then all of a sudden they have, you know, uh, capital gains to pay on that. They turn around, they decide, you know what, I'm just going to do full-time real estate now because I've been dabbling in this and now I don't have a job because I sold my business. And they invest $6 million of that into real estate, utilizing bonus depreciation. Um, what that allows them to do in that situation is to activate those passive losses for that year. Isn't that correct? Right. So the losses for that year, not for previous years, but for that right. year. Absolutely. Right. So what that means is, is that actually with $6 million, you could take six out of that $8 million. Chances are you invest that and you leverage that, you could end up with an $8 million loss that right. completely offsets that gain. So you may not, not pay any tax on that. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's basically exactly what, you know, these guys are doing, but I thought it's, you know, it's, it's a really interesting play for some people who are already investing in real estate who, um, who have a big waterfall and they don't even think about this, but it's a great opportunity to get involved with something and, you know, have a second career. And by the way, save on a, bunch of capital gains. So um, shifting gears, I would do want to go back a little bit to what we were talking about. We touched on it a little bit before. There's an interplay between, you know, people on your team. you got your tax professionals, your other team. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about this offline here, but specifically as it relates to things like asset protection and estate planning, I have found this as a you know, as a, as a person trying to deal with these different members, especially when everybody's really smart, it is actually really, it's a difficult terrain to tread. Let's put it that way. Um, would you talk about some of the different dynamics specifically as it relates to asset protection, estate planning, and taxes that are kind of, 
um, opposite forces that sometimes become issues for clients when they start, you know, trying to make some uh, planning? Well, the, the biggest issue is, um, well, the biggest issue is most attorneys can't speak English. Um, that's the biggest issue. They speak legalese, but no English. And yeah. that is the biggest issue. You, you really do need somebody on your team who can interpret that. Yeah. Uh, By I, the way, you're that guy for me, Tom. So if you've noticed, I've had you on. You're not the first person I've done that for. I, I had a client that specifically, her, her, the way she used me primarily was to interpret what the attorney was saying. Yeah. And say, okay. So what's that? What's he saying again? What's he saying? Cause they don't speak English. So you got to have an interpreter. Um, but it's the, the, one of the biggest challenges is that attorneys are very specialized. So right. they tend to be really good at one thing and that's all they're good at. Um, quite frankly, a lot like, you know, most physicians, right? You're sure. very specialized in an area, which right. makes you right. very good at that area. So in estate planning, attorney typically doesn't understand anything about income tax. Okay. That seems mm -hmm. like what? You're, you're, an, you're a tax attorney. No, you're an estate tax attorney because there are income tax attorneys and there are estate mm -hmm. tax attorneys. And then you have asset protection attorneys who typically don't understand estate planning and they right. don't understand income tax. And so what you have to have is you do have to have somebody on your team who's a generalist, right? Who can actually bring these forces together and make them work together. And that's obviously something that I do for you, Buck, is that, you know, I'm talking, I, and it takes, and you've seen it, <laughs> some of those journeys, it takes me two or three times too with them, right? Yeah, well, I, it's mind-numbing sometimes. I just last time, the last time we talked to an attorney, I think I, I, I finally go, oh, okay, now I get it. I, it, it. That was like the third time we talked to this guy. And I'm going, you know, right. just speak a little bit of English and I'd be really good. So it, it does take somebody to kind of coordinate all that. Right. And, and that can actually speak English that, that you understand. Hopeful, you know, I think frequently that's your accountant. Sometimes it might be your financial planner, frankly. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while you run into an attorney who actually speaks English and they, and they can fulfill that role. It's just pretty rare. It's uh, more common that, um, and, and accountants don't always speak English either. So yeah. it's, it's a matter of having, somebody's got to put the whole package together. Somebody's got to look at the income tax, the estate tax, the asset protection, you know, the investment side and really understand that whole big picture. And that's a, a, frankly, I mean, you know, that's a challenging person to find. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and yeah, and they have different sort of ideas too, right? I mean, what's good for estate planning or what's good for asset protection may not be a good move. For, for tax purposes, tax. for income tax. That, that's right. exactly right. So you and I were on the call the other day yeah. and, you know, I had to get, I finally got the attorney to indicate that, you know what, the reality is, is that there was no difference from an income tax standpoint. Well, there's no difference and we do whatever we want, right? But sometimes there's big differences from an income sure. tax. And then there's other times where there's big differences from an estate tax, right? So, I mean, fortunately, this attorney we were talking to did understand both estate tax and asset protection. So that was very, very helpful to have right. an attorney who understood so both. But it is, there are competing interests. And so you have to balance out what do you want to do? And they all compete with what you want to do, yeah. right? I mean, that's the challenge is then you have to take it and say, because really your question, your question as the investor, as the taxpayer, as the client is, how can I do what I want to do? 
And yeah. that's really the only question you have. And so it's, it's actually very important to learn to ask that question that way. Because yeah. if you ask an attorney, can I do this? Likely, more likely than not, they will say no, yeah. right? If you ask them, how can I do this? They'll say, well, if you made this, this, and this change, now you can do it. Are you willing to make that change? That's a whole different, that's a whole different dialogue. Yeah, and, and sometimes we just kind of do what we, you know, what, what we understand the lens that we look at life through. And one of the exchanges I had with uh, this guy, who's actually, you know, really good at what he does and he's very well known, very but he's, um, but, but he wrote back something to the extent that, uh, you came, yeah, you wanted me to, you know, keep you from death taxes and now you're, you've changed your mind. And the reality was I never went with the intention of, you know, estate planning. I'm hopefully I'm on 45 and uh, I've still got a long run here. Um, so I'm not quite ready to, you know, to, to, to start thinking about that as much, but that's the lens he was kind of looking through everything through. And, and that's what got me kind of spooked and wanted me to get you involved. But anyway, um, Tom, we're um, looking forward to having you out at, um, at our next meetup in Dallas, uh, Doug, Doug, Doug Lodmel is going to be there too. Who's actually one of these attorneys who does speak English. Doug actually um, speaks English. He's yeah, great. He's, he's great. And actually, uh, recently interviewed him as well. Um, but by the way, you know, thanks for all you do. Um, you've made a big impact obviously on, in my life and even just from reading the books, et cetera, but now as my CPA. So it's kind of, uh, uh, full circle for me. And that's cool. And the book, of course, and I joked about this before that this thrilling book, but this is a really good book. Everybody who in my group here, who actually sits down and reads tax-free wealth, you will really enjoy this. It it may sound like a tax book. How could that be enjoyable? But I've read it a couple of times and I feel like I always get something out of it um, every time. And it's on the recommended reading list for wealthformula.com. But Tom, um, you know, a number of people are already a part of, you know, we're looking for somebody who's a higher level CPA. Um, if they want to find somebody and they want to get in touch with WealthAbility and go through that process, how do they do that? It's really easy. Just just sign on to WealthAbility.com. There's actually a pop-up that'll let you schedule a, a call with us. We have, um, as you know, Buck, we now have a, a network Yep. Uh, CPAs and tax advisors, not even all of them are CPAs. So some people are just starting out and they're going, I don't feel like I really need a CPA. You had, you mentioned this to me a couple of years ago, Buck, you yep. were kind of pounding on me and saying, Tom, what about these guys who aren't quite ready for, you know, what you have to offer, but would really like somebody who's actually, who's at least trained and can do a lot of the good fundamental work. And so we, uh, we start building the network about a year ago, um, the Wealth Building Network. We have, um, I think, 15 members now. We're growing pretty rapidly. And uh, and by the way, if let's say that some of you, um, our listeners, have a CPA that they like, but they'd like them to be trained, we will train them. So we're actually in that that position now where we can take on members into our Wealth Building Network and train them. So people used to always tell me, well, but I like my CPA. Great. Now I can say, now let us train them. So if you'd like to have kind of your cake and eat it too, you want your current CPA, but you'd like them to be trained to learn how to do this stuff, just send them, send them over to wealthability.com. And we're, we're happy to talk to them. So it, whether you're looking for a CPA or you just like your CPA to get better, please join us at wealthability.com. We'd love to have you. Well, that's definitely interesting. And especially for people who like, I've heard that before, right? I, I use a CPA that my, my parents used and I just feel bad. <laughs> 
So at least this helps him get into the right century and all that kind of thing. So, um, Tom, thanks again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast, and we'll talk soon. Always. Thank you, Buck. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Tom is an incredible resource, so I really hope you do pick up a copy of his book, Tax-Free Wealth, uh, if you have not done so before. I'm not kidding. This is a book that fundamentally will change the way you think about taxes and, and investing, and I would even go as far as to say is that it should be required reading for Wealth Formula Nation. Um, you can pick up a copy if you want to look. At, you can go to wealthformula.com and go to the part where it, with resources, and it's one of the books I recommend in there as well. Um, also, remember, Tom is one of our guests uh, at the next Wealth Formula Meetup in Dallas. He's also part of the course, this course called uh, Your Roadmap to Real Wealth, which is also something you ought to look at if you're interested in getting more and more involved with the Wealth Formula community. This is a course, but it also opens up into a community where we have a Facebook group, we have a portal, and we also have bi-weekly Zoom video calls, which is a big favorite amongst members. You can check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, uh, the more time you spend with Tom, the better investor you're going to become. I'm living proof of that. So, you know, between that course, between this podcast, between the meetup, get as much Tom Wheelwright as you can. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.